this week on the Backtable Podcast. There is no shame in changing jobs. There's no shame in getting into a place and realizing that that's not either what you thought it was going to be or you just don't see yourself being there long term. And that a lot of people change jobs, especially within their first few years. Um, I think there's some statistic from SIR surveys done a while back about graduating fellows changed jobs. 50% of them changed jobs within their first year or two of practice. And so, you know, it's very common. And, and that's just because it's hard to know exactly what you want. And especially coming out of fellowship, the perfect job may not be available at that time. So I don't say go into a job thinking that you're just going to be there temporarily, but at the same time, don't be afraid to look elsewhere and, and figure out if, if you need to, to take a different path. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Backtable website, which is www.backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave a written review, or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our endovascular community. Before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad radiation protection products developed by physicians for physicians and clinically proven to protect during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your health on anything less. Trust RadPad protection for all your interventions. See RadPad.com for more information and contact info at RadPad.com to learn more about radiation safety CME credits for you and your team. I'm Dr. Ali Behetti coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. Today's guest is Dr. Amy Taylor, vascular and interventional radiologist at the University of Virginia. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, Allie. Thanks for having me. So, Amy, tell me a little bit about your career path up until this point. So, my career path has been a little bit unusual in that when I was in medical school, I was really interested in um, surgery as well as internal medicine, kind of went back and forth between the two, actually applied for and interviewed for both um, as a fourth year medical student, and then matched into internal medicine. So did that residency first. During that residency, I sort of figured out that I didn't think that that was what I could do for the rest of my life and be happy. So tried to figure out then what I wanted to do, if I wanted to do a second residency, if I could find a subspecialty of internal medicine that um, I liked. So kind of tried out all different things. Happened into a radiology elective, um, not really intending that to be my career path, but just did it as an elective and ended up really liking it. Talked to my classmates from medical school who had gone into radiology and all of them were very happy. So I decided to take the leap and do a second residency in radiology after I completed my internal medicine residency. So did that and then um, found interventional radiology during my radiology residency. And it was like everything sort of came together into one subspecialty that I loved and that it was, you know, the procedural aspect of surgery that I really liked, the intellectual workup and diagnostic dilemma of internal medicine that I really liked, as well as the imaging aspects from radiology. So all of that came together into, into one thing. And so I sort of found like I had found my path and was really excited. And that was all sort of brought together when I did my fellowship and just loved every single day of my fellowship and knew that this <laughs> was exactly where I was supposed to be. Wow. Every single day. That sounds like a great fellowship experience. How did you find your first job out of fellowship? 
So um, at a fellowship, I had thought about going into academics at the time and interviewed in several academic jobs and just never really found the one um, that felt like a really good fit. Also interviewed in a couple of private practice jobs sort of back home. I had done all my training, both of my internal medicine and my radiology residencies, as well as my IR fellowship was all far away from home. So I thought, well, if I can't find the perfect academic job, then I'll go back home for a little while at least. And so um, found a private practice group in my hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas. One of my good friends was was an IR in the job. And so I, I knew that I would love working with, with her. And so the group seemed like a really good group, really solid, solid place to be. So that's what I, that's what I ended up doing. Okay. Uh, what was your first year in practice like? What was the job like? Was it part DR, all IR? So the, it, it was a traditional sort of DR, IR group. There were about 32 total partners, I think. And there were eight IRs, um, of which I was one. So we did you know, we had mostly IR. It was like, I want to say like 85, 90% IR. The IRs were responsible for reading all of the sort of vascular studies. So CTAs, MRAs, um, that kind of stuff. So we would read in between cases and then we would have occasional like one to two days a month of just pure diagnostic shifts. Um, so it wasn't too bad, but it was um, was a little bit of a mix of IR and DR. It was a traditional hospital-based practice um, in one of the community hospitals. We were we covered three different hospitals, sort of a, a main hospital and then two sort of satellite hospitals that were smaller, um, as well as a um, dialysis access center. So a place where we would staff a couple of days a week and only do like fish telegrams and mm-hmm. um, dialysis catheters and things like that. Okay. All right. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty traditional private practice, part-time IR, part-time DR job. Um, was the Dialysis Access Center a, a joint venture with the hospital system or was it owned by your private practice group? Neither. So it was actually owned by um, one of the nephrology groups, um, had previously been staffed by some interventional nephrologists, um, but they weren't happy with um, the services that they were providing or the outcomes they were getting. And so um, kind of reached out to us to see if we would staff that. And that happened right before I joined the group. Um, so it was a fairly new venture when I got there, but um, we were that's what we had started to do, staffing that a couple of days a week. Um, and they seemed to be really uh, happy with the, with the contribution we were making to that. So that's an interesting way to get that access center. So were there any parts about the private practice job that came as a surprise to you at a fellowship? I will say the biggest surprise that came to me was just sort of the the culture of the hospital system and how medicine was practiced in general. It was so different from anything I'd ever experienced in any academic place, whether it was internal medicine or radiology, and different from the VA because I'd always practiced in a VA. So totally just separate. And a a big part of that, I think, was the sort of decentralization of everything. So instead of everybody being on the same um, electronic medical record and having all these ways to communicate with each other, everything was separate, right? So cardiology notes were totally separate and on their own system and our notes were totally separate, GI. And so you would have to do a lot of digging and a lot of phone calls and say, hey, can you fax those notes over or whatever you needed to try to figure out what was going on with the patient. So you know, you might get a request for a biopsy of something and you might have some questions and you would have to sort of reach out to Hemonc and then you might also have to reach out to pulmonology to say, can this patient go under, you know, moderate sedation and or, or whatnot. It, so it was a lot of 
coordination um, mm. that I that I just wasn't expecting. What would you say the culture was like uh, interacting between IRs and other other physicians in the hospitals? Yeah, that was um, a bit of a change for me as well. You know, in the places where I had had trained, IR was very much you know a clinical player and was sort of on equal playing field. You know, their opinions were valued. Um, and respected. And I felt like in my private practice, that was not so much the case. Um, IRs were seen as sort of technicians. The idea of a consult was foreign. Um, everything <laughs> came through as an order. And the referring providers would were not very happy if you ever um, wanted to offer a different opinion to a management, whether that be, you sure. know, instead of doing X, maybe we should do Y or um, I don't think this is in the patient's best interest to do anything interventional um, or invasive. And so and so that was a big adjustment was trying to navigate my way through that when, you know, I'm a strong proponent of having a clinical practice. And, you know, I, I sort of look at it as I'm an MD, I'm a physician. So I also have an opinion on patient care and it's just as valid. And I am the expert on the interventions that we offer and um, I want to do everything I can to help patients, but I, I don't want to do things that either won't benefit the patients or or have more risk than than benefit to them. So I think you've alluded to a lot of the things about your private practice job that maybe weren't a good fit to you. Was there anything that you really enjoyed about your job? I, I really enjoyed my partners, and I think that we had a, a great group um, to work with my IR partners and all of our techs and our nurses were were really great. And to be fair, I really enjoyed the time off. Um, you know, I we <laughs> yeah. had a, a very good system in that our, the IRs got every single post-call day off in case that you were called in and, and working all day, all night overnight. Um, you had you had that day off. And so that was nice um, to have in addition to all of the vacation time as well. So that was a, a big perk. And I, and I think it was a great place to come out of fellowship and get started and get your feet wet, being on your own and making decisions on your own. It was the place that I sort of, you know, kind of grew up as an IR, right? Like you, you sort mm -hmm. of figure out like, oh yeah, I don't have anyone sort of looking over my shoulder telling me, you know, this is what you have to do or this is what you should do. This was the first time that I was able to say, do things the way that I, I thought they needed to be done um, and feel confident in, in making those choices. Um, and my partners were all really supportive of, you know, of the choices that we made there wasn't a whole lot of Monday morning quarterbacking or anything like that. Um, mm. And if I needed help, then they were more than willing to come in and help. I remember the first time that I had to do a bronchial artery embolization out of fellowship. You know, I'd only done a couple in fellowship and here I was on my own and it was a Saturday night um, uh, on call. And, you know, all I could think of in my head was, is I really don't want to paralyze this person. And so I called one of my senior partners uh, who, because I, I knew he was in town and I just said, hey, are you around? Like, do you mind just sort of being available if I need you? And and he was like, absolutely. And um, next thing I know, he's in the hospital and he's scrubbing in and um, he did the case with me. So I couldn't have asked for for better partners. Oh, yeah. That that kind of support, your, especially your first year out, is just so critical because you do so many cases during fellowship, but you can't see everything, right? And you might do a case like that one or two times. But then when you're the attending and you're the one doing it in the real world, knowing that there's somebody who you can at least call on for help, <laughs> who's willing to come help you, 
that's uh, that's something really crucial. And I, I, I've been really appreciative too of my older partners and in the groups that I've worked for who've also supported me in that way. Okay. So we've kind of talked about your private practice job. When did you identify that the job wasn't a good fit for you? I actually probably early on figured out that I didn't think this was going to be the best long-term fit for me. And I think part of that was at the very beginning, it just being such a steep learning curve, such a different environment. And it was very overwhelming. And I just wanted to go back to what I was used to. But I had very good mentors from fellowship. And um, everyone told me, you know, just you have to give it at least a year, get settled. Um, I had one person tell me you have to give it two years to really um, know a practice and figure out if that's going to be the best fit for you. At that point in time, I honestly was like, I'm not going to make it here two years, um, but I will try to give it a year. So I, I did that. And then at a year, I was like, I, I just, I don't see that I can make this into a practice, the practice that I want it to be. I, I could see that there could be changes made. Um, I knew that they would take a long time to sort of see all of that come into fruition. Um, and again, culture is one of those things that if you can change it, it's going to be a very slow erosion over time. And um, the culture of the hospital I was in, I felt like was very in the past in that gender discrimination was rampant and um, not just in radiology, but in surgery and medicine. It was just, it was very pervasive. And that was something that was very different from any of my academic places where I'd been. So that was a big part of what made the the job unsatisfactory for me. So at about a year, I started looking around, but I didn't want to just sort of take another job or just to get out of the job I was in. I was like, if I'm going to change jobs, I want it to be for the right job. You know, I'm now in a position, unlike we're in fellowship, where I'm, I don't really have a time frame, right? So I have a job. Um, it is a good job. And um, therefore, I can sort of take my time until I find the right job. And I was able to sort of sit down and think about what it is that I wanted, what kind of practice I wanted, you know, sort of wait until the right job came to me. Was there anybody that you reached out to when you were first considering transitioning? Was it your fellowship attendings? Uh, yes. So several um, of my fellowship attendings I still keep in touch with, but a couple in particular. Yes, I reached out to them and I, you know, kind of talked about, I think I want to get back into academics and, you know, what is that like? And, you know, is, am I going to be looked at, you know, differently because I went from private practice to academics? Is, am I going to be seen as, um, you know, not as committed to, to academia because I went into, um, you know, private practice first or whatever. And, you know, they all assured me that, that that was not the case and that I, on the contrary, because I had a couple of years experience now that I would actually be, you know, more valued than than someone coming straight out. And so, and they would send along, you know, if they heard, I think there's, you know, going to be a job opening up in Houston. How do you feel about Houston? Or, you know, mm -hmm. there's something in New York or, because even though I was in my hometown at the time, like I wasn't tied there um, and I was willing to kind of go anywhere in the country. Just what mattered to me most was, you know, finding, finding a job that I liked. So, so they were, they were very, very good sounding boards um, to have. So you spent a lot of time in that first job and you figured out what you didn't like and what you did like. So you were able to kind of make a menu for what you wanted for your future job. Could I ask you to delve into a little bit what the important components of that menu were? Sure. So part of the reason I wanted to get back into academics was for education. I 
missed being around trainees. I missed having um, teaching as um, a major part of sort of daily practice. So that was high on my list. You know, I miss little academic projects as well, sort of being involved, even if, you know, I'm not a big bench researcher or anything like that. So I knew that that wasn't going to be my my strong pull to academia, but just sort of being involved and saying, looking at a problem and, and saying, you know, what's the data on this? Can we can we pull the data that we have and put it together and, and see if see if we can come up with an answer or, or something like that? Little things like that. I wanted a higher complexity of cases um, than, than I was getting. So I, I wanted a place that could offer that. I wanted some more, I guess, arterial type work, um, place that does, you know, not only oncology, um, but also PAD, aortic work. Um, that was sure. what I had trained on in fellowship. So essentially, I guess I was looking for something very much like my fellowship. Um, Cause again, I, really liked my fellowship. I loved um, all the things that we did there. And so I wanted to find a place that was um, had the similar type feel, had good relationships with vascular surgery um, and with oncology, um, had consistent tumor boards um, that we were involved in, things like that. Obviously, a place that has a strong clinic and a, a clinical service that you admit your patients to, you're round on every day, that kind of stuff. Okay. So now you're on the other side. Is there anything that you wish you'd known before moving back to academics? Yeah, I wish I would have realized how much I miss doing cases on my own. Oh, <laughs> you stop doing cases on your own a lot. And, and now you're watching residents and fellows do them, which is wonderful and fantastic. And you get to sort of help them grow. And, you know, you walk a, a first or second year radiology resident through their first pick line Um <laughs> and then your your very next case, you're you're sort of watching from the control room while a fellow does does a case, um, mm-hmm. and you sort of feel like you're not really needed. Um, but it, you know that's all part of it. Um, but every once in a while, it's it's nice when the residents are all sort of busy doing other things, and suddenly you know the tech comes in and says, "We well, need someone to do this pick line," and I'm like, "Oh, I'll do it." <laughs> you know, I think that's probably what I miss the most is just every once in a while getting getting to actually do things yourself. <laughs> and there's a there's a different skill set, right, in supervising somebody, right? You have to let them go far enough and do do a case as much as they can on their own, but understand when they get into danger, when they get into trouble, and know when to intervene. And I, and I can imagine it probably takes a long time to find find the right balance there. Absolutely, you know, I have to sort of restrain myself a lot when I'm and when I'm watching a resident, and they're, you know, we're trying to get into, you know, a uterine artery um, doing it during a UAE. And um, they're sort of struggling with the, you know, the microwire to, to select the artery and, you know, I have to let make myself let them flail for a little while. And um, before <laughs> a little I while, but not over. too long, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and then it's just, it's, it's amazing, the things that they get into and the, and the, you know, I don't want to say complications, but the, you know, the sort of problems that they have and, you know, you'll, you'll turn your back for a second and then you'll turn back around and you'll be like, how, how did you even do that? Like, that was not even something I had considered that might go wrong. You know, uh, whenever I did something like that in fellowship, Dan Sheeran would always say, that's not a described technique in the literature. (laughs) That sounds like Dan Sheeran. (laughs) Is there anything about the transition that could have gone smoother for you or that you would want young or future IRs to know about? Honestly, I feel like I had a very smooth transition. I um, I was really lucky in that I did find a, a job that was very reminiscent of how my fellowship ran. And so it, 
coming into the practice and seeing the cases on the board every day, like that was something that I had experience with. I have really good partners um, who, you know, were not trying to hold me back in any way. You know, they were very supportive and, hey, do you want to go do this case? It's absolutely, it's all yours. You know, what do you want to do? Uh, what kind of cases do you want to do? What are you interested in? What um, what patients do you want to see? Um, and sort of let me let me run with it. So I think I was I was lucky um, in a lot of ways. But I think just being open and sort of knowing when you come into practice, any practice, um, what, when you come out of fellowship or whether you're changing jobs, sort of not to come in guns a blazing, right? Like you, you have to come in and, and take a little while to figure out what the culture is there. What's, what's the norm? What are the traditions? Cause you, you don't want to come in and, and change everything. Um, you can make small changes sort of as you go, but you have to sort of respect what's already there and in place. And so I, I think that's probably the biggest thing is just taking some time to, to sit back and learn what, what they do, how they do things. That's that's true for your private practice job and also as you're as you've transitioned, I'm, I'm sure. I've read that there are some resources for IRs who are in private practice to help transition back into academics. Are you aware of of any resources offered by SIR or or other institutions? Yeah, um, the one that comes to mind is, I mean, if you're a research, if you want to do research, um, SIR Foundation has a specific grant um, that is for people who have been in private practice and transitioned back into academics. Um, I think it requires that you spend three years in private practice before going back to academics and then, but it is specifically for that, um, for that demographic. Other than that, I'm not really sure of any specific resources. It sounds like the, the most useful thing that you did was keep in touch with your fellowship uh, mentors and had them kind of tell you when opportunities came up. Yeah. You know, I remember when I left fellowship or section chief at the time had said, I don't worry about the people who go out into practice that I hear from. You know, I worry about the people that go out and I never hear from them again. And so he really encouraged um, all of us to to sort of reach back out, to stay in touch, to ask questions. And so, you know, I took him up on that uh, <laughs> and asked lots of questions, would ask questions about cases in addition to sort of career type questions. Um, but then they served as my primary um, references when I applied for this job. Because when you're coming out of private practice, there's a lot of, I hate to say strategy, but you you know, you don't want to, you don't necessarily want your practice to know that you're looking other places for fear of sort of retaliation type things. And I don't know that there would have been, but it always just is a little bit awkward. Um, and so I didn't want, you know, to necessarily to have my private practice partners be my primary references. So it was my my fellowship attendings that were my primary references. Plus, you know, they're the ones that know the people here because in academics, of course, the, the world is so much smaller. And so, you know, it was nice. It was easy for the people here at my at my job now to to talk with those people because they knew them. And, and so any ref- recommendations that they made were that much stronger. Excellent. Excellent. Any final words of advice that you'd like to offer either to young IRs that are just starting in their first jobs or to folks who are contemplating making the move as you did? I think my biggest advice is that, you know, there is no shame in changing jobs. There's no shame in getting into a place and realizing that that's not either what you thought it was going to be or you just don't see yourself being there long term and that 
a lot of people change jobs, especially within their first few years. Um, I think there's some statistic from SIR surveys done a while back about graduating fellows changed jobs. 50% of them changed jobs within their first year or two of practice. And so, you know, it's very common. And, and that's just because it's hard to know exactly what you want. And especially coming out of fellowship, the perfect job may not be available at that time. So I don't say go into a job thinking that you're just going to be there temporarily, but at the same time, don't be afraid to look elsewhere and, and figure out if, if you need to, to take a different path. All right, Amy, it was, it was really nice to talk to you. Thank you for your insights uh, and your advice and mentorship. Stay tuned. I guess we're, we'll be hearing from you in the future. Uh, I know you're in charge of the the gala for the SIR meeting. Is that correct? Um, if you'd yes. like to give a little bit of info to our listeners about that. Well, we um, are very excited that we're finally going to hopefully have an in-person meeting uh, in 2022 in Boston. So um, we are full steam ahead with planning for an in-person uh, gala with that. And um, it's going to be amazing. So I encourage all of you who can to come to the meeting and also come to the come to the gala and support the foundation. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Allie. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Vivek Prasad. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.